The following audio has been brought to you by Word of Grace Community Church. For more information about Word of Grace, visit wogcc.com. Well, over the past few weeks, we have been dealing with relationships in this series called Love and War, and we've been specifically talking about how to love people in which we disagree, because we all know that we're going to have people in our lives that we disagree with, but God has called us to love Him and then love people and serve the world. So we've been dealing with this issue of how to love people in the world with the love of God that we disagree with. And I've been pretty generic for the most part about relationships that this would apply to. But today I want to focus more on marriage because marriage is supposed to be for the long haul. And when you say I do, that means that you are done looking for someone else to spend the rest of your life with. You have publicly agreed to work through the good times, bad times, the disappointments, and everything that life throws at you. You have publicly said before God and witnesses that you are going to put the other person ahead of yourself until death parts you both. That's a huge commitment. That's a huge commitment. And marriage is a call for both husbands and wives to die to themselves. We're both called to be Christ-like in that manner. And if this relationship is supposed to go the distance, and we're called to do this for the long haul, then how do we make it last? How do we enjoy the journey together instead of simply enduring one another? Because we don't want to live the rest of our lives just simply enduring and putting up with the other person. So how do we do this for the long haul? Well, first of all, marriage is a covenant. It is a covenant between one man and one woman for life. And God should be at the center of that covenant. Amen? If he's not at the center, the marriage is going to struggle. Now, that doesn't give someone a right to simply end the marriage, but it does make things a lot harder when you don't have that source of hope to go through. Maybe you weren't believers before you started dating, and maybe one of you came to faith in Christ, or maybe uh, uh, you've been kind of uh, going at this alone, and you just really fell in love with someone, and even though you were a believer, you ended up marrying someone who perhaps wasn't, and there's a strain. There's something there. There's tension there between the believer and the unbeliever, or maybe one of you values their faith more than the other. Maybe one of you uh, happens to be passionately, actively pursuing the Lord and the other one may be more passive with their faith and just kind of being drug along almost. That still doesn't give you a right uh, to simply end the marriage because this is supposed to be a covenant. This is a deep, deep commitment. As a matter of fact, it's supposed to illustrate to us the type of commitment that Jesus has towards the church, towards his bride. We are the bride of Christ, and he is the bridegroom. We are in covenant relationship with another person. We have made this covenant not just before one another and uh, a lot of folks that came and showed up at our wedding just to eat free food, but also (laughs) to God. It was to God. That's the most important of all. And so therefore, he's supposed to be the center of the marriage, not just during the bad times, not just when we need him uh, or when we maybe appear to think that we need him because we always need him. Amen? Always need him. But for him to be at the center of our lives, man, that's really the healthiest way for us to truly succeed and for us to not just endure each other, but for us to commit and enjoy one another for the long haul. Now, out of the fear of getting it wrong, 
people try to do things outside of God's will. And fear will always drive and lead us to sin. It will. Fear, if we just live in fear, it will lead us outside of God's will into sin. It'll lead us into doing things that aren't pleasing to God and not the way God intended things to be. Fear will lead you to sin because people think that living together is a safer way. It's a better way to maybe try another person out before they make a marriage covenant. But it's sin. The fear of ending up with the wrong person, or maybe perhaps getting hurt again, or the fear of losing something, or the fear of creating a complicated situation, you know, with families and children and all this stuff. This fear will drive people to avoid the marriage covenant, and it leads people to sin because the covenant marriage, man, this union is symbolized not only by public commitment, not only by the exchanging of rings and vows. But also, it's supposed to be sexual intimacy. That's why these things should be reserved for marriage, because that's the way God designed it. All sexual intimacy should be reserved for your spouse after you are married. And if you want to be married for the long haul, then you need to do it God's way. If you're not doing things God's way right now, you need to repent, acknowledge that it's sinful. And then change. Do something different. Don't just feel bad. I I don't want you to come to church and just feel bad. I want you to align yourself with God's will because it's going to set you up for success in the long run, for the long haul. And so many people think that, oh, well, I need to know if this person's going to hurt me or I need to know if I can really trust this person. I need to know if this person and I are compatible. And so they think that's the pathway to find those things out. And it's not. It's just fear leading you to sin. If you did things wrong before you got married, maybe you were living together and sleeping together before you were married, acknowledge that it's sin and repent and trust that you're forgiven and then move forward in your life without promoting doing things outside of God's design and teach your children the right way and promote that the marriage is a covenant, that it's sacred, that sex is sacred because this world has cheapened sex so much. It's cheapened sex, and it's tried to normalize sin, and it's torn down the importance of the marriage covenant. A marriage covenant is a commitment to God and your spouse saying, I am in this for the long haul. I am giving you all of me and only you all of me. The two shall become one flesh. That's what Jesus was talking about. As he's saying, this is something that's supposed to be between that husband and wife. The Bible says that the marriage bed is undefiled. And that this is something that we're supposed to understand and and treat as sacred and holy. And if we treat that marriage covenant as sacred, as holy, and we won't cheapen all the other things that are associated with marriage and reserve those for the context of marriage, it's going to help us to be in this thing for the long haul. And even if we didn't. Even if we made mistakes, even if we've fallen into those things, if you can at least acknowledge and say, Lord, I recognize that, man, I've I've given into my flesh. I've done things outside of the way you wanted me to do it. Lord, I want to repent of that, and I want to do things your way from now on. Do that. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. This is supposed to be for life, and that's the reason God takes this thing so seriously. Because marriage is supposed to be for life, not just until you don't make me happy anymore. I mean, no one says that on their wedding day. No one says, um, you know, until death do us part, or, you know, just until you don't make me happy anymore, you don't meet all my needs. 
until, you know, we have an argument or until you, you know, really are difficult to live with. That's not what we say, and that's not God's intent, because God doesn't give up on us, and we're not supposed to give up on our spouse, <laughs> because marriage is one of the strongest tools of sanctification that God gives us. What do I mean by that? I mean that marriage helps us to see things that we don't see in ourselves or by ourselves. Because if we just go and do life alone, you know, we can fool ourselves and think we're pretty awesome. But then you get married and you can't fool your spouse. You can try uh, and you will fail, uh, but your spouse sees you for who you really are. Your spouse knows that when you're hanging out with friends, if you're describing how great of a week that you had, your spouse knows if you really had a great week or not. Because when you get in the car, he or she's going to say, really, we had a great week? Really, you told them all of that stuff? Seriously? What about this? I, I didn't feel like we had a great week like you described. They call us out. They see who we really are. They, they hold us accountable to being real, to being authentic, even, well, especially, rather, when we don't want to be held accountable to be authentic because they see through all the junk. And God uses that relationship to help to sanctify, to help to purify, to purge out all the masks that we would want to try to wear. And we like wearing masks because we like for other people to be fooled into thinking that we've got our whole act together and everything's going great. And when we put on the mask, it's wonderful. And our spouse sees us without our mask on. And they're able to speak to those things. And we know that they see those things. That's why when my wife and I argue, I quote Proverbs 25 and 24 that says, it's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. <laughs> I wish I was joking about quoting that because I actually did that this past week. Um, because what marriage does is it gives me an opportunity to come face-to-face -face with my selfishness. And marriage helps to expose my selfishness. And that goes for men and women. And my wife and I, just this past week, the thing that we argued about, and I don't have her permission to share this, and I might get in trouble for it later, but it's a really good sermon illustration. This is not, you know, a lot of pastors, when they preach, they'll say, you know, something that happened 20 years ago when my wife and I used to argue before we became this perfect couple, whatever. <laughs> this happened last week, okay? My wife and I got in an argument, and I'm not talking about a little cute argument. I'm talking about, like, legit. Like, we're, like, it's, it's going down for real. Like, like, I'm telling you, we got in a real argument. And you want to know what it was over? It was over which order of our children was going to get braces next. <laughs> I wish, I wish I were joking about that because of how petty that that may sound to you. But it started off as a small conversation and ended up being this stupid, blown out of proportion argument about which kid was going to get braces next after we pay off this kid's braces. It's going to be this one. No, it's going to be this one. No, we're going to do it this way. That doesn't make sense. Why don't we try this? Next thing you know, we're spiraling out of control. And next thing you know, I get accused of all sorts of things, and I'm accusing her of all sorts of things. I bring up stuff from years ago. She brings up stuff from years ago. <laughs> we were just talking about braces, and that's when I quoted Proverbs 25 and 24. <clears throat> which didn't make things better. 
But really, when I've kind of examined this with hindsight being what it is, I look back and I go, you know, what caused that? It was just a lot of selfishness. And it got exposed because I wanted my way and she wanted her way. And we were trying to see which way was going to win. And we were both arguing for our way. And it was foolish and it was sinful um, because we were being very fleshly. We were not being very Christ-like towards one another. We were not having Christ-like tones. Um, We did work through it. Um, and you're just going to have to see which kid gets braces next if you care. Um, if you follow the Armstrong family that well, it's kind of creepy if you do. But, you know, because we're in the long haul, though, we're, we're in this for the long haul. We're, we've taken divorce as an option off the table, and we're going to work through challenges. We're going to work through differences. And... We have to acknowledge selfishness, and I've had to repent of my selfishness, and I've had to confess my selfishness to her, and she came and apologized to me as well and confessed her selfishness to me, and she told me where she was wrong, which was wonderful to hear. (laughs) But here's what the Bible says in James, the fourth chapter and the sixth verse But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want you to think about that. Let let that scripture carry some weight for you, okay? Let's let that scripture just kind of rest on our hearts for a moment. That God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. I think we get too quickly to the part of the scripture we like about getting grace and being humble because we're all super awesome at being humble. And so we totally deserve and get that grace in return because we're just super, super humble. And we kind of blow past the first part of that verse. That's a weighty verse of scripture. It doesn't just say God doesn't like it when we're proud or when we're prideful or selfish. He doesn't say, you know, God's really upset. He's really upset at you when you're prideful. He said he opposes you. Whoa, that's heavy. I don't want to be in opposition with God. I don't, I don't want to be on the other end of where God is. But when I'm prideful, that's the polar opposite of where he's at. God opposes that. That is us putting ourselves in the position of being in opposition with our Heavenly Father. I don't want to allow myself to do that, even though I drift over there, man. And I can drift over there over the stupidest stuff. I can drift over into selfishness so easily. I can make it all about me and my way and me getting what I want. But here's what pride does. And here's the sneaky part about pride that we've got to get past. And if we recognize it, I believe it will help us to walk in victory over it, is that pride tries to fix what's wrong with someone else. Pride is that thing in every one of us that you may be even experiencing right now because you wish that someone was here to hear this message. And that's pride desiring that. I'm not trying to pick on you. If you're warming up the old elbows to 
during a message like this, that elbow is driven by pride because it's wanting to say, see how wrong you are? And see how I've been right all along? See what I've been trying to communicate to you? See how hard-headed you've been that you haven't been able to get this simple message that I have to drag you to church for you to understand that? That's pride that's driving. You can say, oh, it's concern. Yeah, but it's pride that wants to be right. It's pride that wishes someone else was here to hear this message because Jesus said this, and this passage of Scripture is one of those that like, I wish Jesus wouldn't have said this. Like, Jesus, it would have been better if you wouldn't have done this, because now that I know this, I'm accountable to it. And that's one of the things about coming to church, hearing a message taught when maybe you wouldn't have seen Scripture a certain way and something gets brought out, and you go, oh, we never thought about it that way before. Guess what? You're now accountable for that. There's no excuses now. And this is one of those texts in Scripture in Matthew chapter 7, Verse 1, Jesus, it's in red. Jesus said, judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, humility is willing to look in the mirror and examine ourselves first before trying to help someone else see their issues because God opposes the proud. Pride is always focused on what's wrong with someone else, and that's what Jesus said. He said, you're missing the point because you've got this huge stinking log that's in your way, and you don't even want to deal with it. Instead, you want to look at what's going on with someone else, and in contrast to what's blocking your view, theirs is just a speck. And you're so concerned about the speck that you miss even being aware of the selfishness and the pride that's coming out of your own heart. Jesus said, why are you dealing with that? Now, he didn't say that we shouldn't deal with it. He didn't say that we should ignore or neglect the speck. He gave us instructions on how to do this. He said that if you're going to deal with the speck, first deal with the log first. Why would he say that? Why would he say, well, wouldn't it just be nicer to just deal with your own problems and let them deal with theirs? No, he said, help them with the speck. Help them to see the speck, but not before you deal with the log. Why? Because if you deal with the log first and you deal with your own pride and the, own, the thing that may be blocking your vision and you humble your heart to say, Lord, show me what I'm not seeing here where I could be wrong in this situation. When you lead from that position, when you lead from that place, it changes your tactics because we've all got our own method to try to resolve conflict. And most of the time, those are really bad tactics. Some of our tactics are we get louder than the other person because that seems to really solve a lot of things. If I can just make myself louder than that person, then that's going to solve and resolve this conflict, and I will show my dominance. We have two cats at our house, and it's something dumb that animals do that they'll come up to you, and they'll put you know, their hand on you or their paw on you, and you think, oh, isn't that sweet? No, that's actually them like trying to like say, I'm running a show. It's like a domination thing when they put, they're not holding your hand. 
you can think that, and that's cute, but they're making a statement. They're saying, yeah, I'm running this show. And so we know this about cats. That's part of their weird, quirky behavior is that they like to put their paw on our hand. They'll come and they'll lay and they'll be like, oh, by the way, just so you know, Jack, <laughs> I'm running the show. That's right. You scoop my poop. You feed me. You water me. Yes, you pet me when I want. And when I don't want you to, I'm out. I'm running the show. And so we are not going to let a cat get one over on us. My wife and I have been doing this for years, that when the cats come and they'll sit on us and they'll put their little paw on our hand, we go, nope, I dominate. And then they'll, what do they do? They take it out and they put it right back on. You go, nope. And we'll do this back and forth and we'll just try to wear them down and let them know, nope, we're in charge. Stop it. We dominate. And that's exactly what we do when we take these tactics of arguing with our spouse. No, I'm in charge. No, I'm in control. No, I'm in control. No, I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I dominate. And we just keep over and over again doing this silly, silly round and round, and we use all these different strategies. Some of us try bringing up the past. Oh, yeah, that's a good strategy. We try maybe bringing up how much money we make in the contrast of how much money they don't make. Yeah, that's a good strategy. That'll work. I'm the one that makes the money around here. We try to bring up how busy we are. That's another tactic we'll try to use. Oh, I'm so busy, and we like to I dominate. Or we like to try to, you know, bring up what's fair, right? That's a fun one. What's fair and not fair. And it's pretty much whatever I think should be fair is what should be fair, obviously, because I'm right and you're wrong. And so we use all these tactics. We get louder. We may try to use our anger or intimidation or manipulation or putting the other person down as a way to just, I'm running the show. I'm the one who's going to win this one. I'm the one who is right and you're wrong over, or, or uh, Proverbs 25 and 24, you know, <laughs> we try to use the Bible. I dominate because I know a scripture to shut you up. That's not a good idea. <laughs> but what's the heart behind all that garbage? What's the heart behind all that? Pride. It's all pride. And it's sinful. And if we'll stop playing around with pride and toying around with pride and pretending like it's okay and we'll call it what it is, which is sin, and repent of it, this is sinful behavior. I've been set free from sin. I'm no longer a slave to sin anymore. I am now a child of God. Amen? I'm no longer a slave to bad habits. I'm no longer a slave to uh, all of the junk that I used to be before I knew Christ. If I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. I'm free. And he who the sun sets free is free indeed. So I'm not a slave to this. I've just got to change my thinking from that sinful pattern and renew my mind to be more in tune with Christ, to have that mind of Christ, to be more Christ-like in my thinking and in my attitudes. But that takes calling sin what it is and that it's sinful. I don't want to be in opposition to God. I don't want to be so focused on someone else's speck that I'm missing the log that's in my own eye. I want to go deal with my log first. Did you know, just to kind of show you how this works even physically in our bodies, that when you're triggered and you get angry, you have an adrenaline spike? And did you know that it takes your body at least 20 minutes to clear out all of that effect from that adrenaline spike that you had. So if you have something that, boom, it just triggered something, ooh, I can't believe that she said that. I can't believe he did that. Ooh, and that adrenaline goes off. 20 minutes is what it takes. But when we say, I need to go cool down, how long does that last? Yeah, about five minutes. And then we thought of something really good to say. 
and we come back and we try to say that thing, that we're like, I wish I would have thought of this in the moment, and we come back and say it because it was really witty or it would really prove our point, and you think you're okay, you think you're in control, but you're really not because your body's still flooded with all those hormones and you didn't even realize it. It takes you at least 20 minutes. You need at least, when you trigger, you need at least a 20-minute adult timeout just to chill out from the effects of that adrenaline spike. So if things have gotten heated in a conversation with your spouse, instead of you going away for five minutes to pray, mm-mm, takes you at least 20 minutes to clear out. So why don't you instead say, you know what, I'm going to focus on my own plank for the next 20, 30 minutes before I can continue this conversation. And what if instead of you focusing on what your spouse was doing wrong or saying wrong or thinking wrong or behaving wrong or wrong attitude, wrong, wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. What if you said, you know what? I need to go spend about half an hour in prayer and focus on my own pride and sinfulness. What if you took that route? And what if you focused on the fact that your pride, your log was getting in the way and then it would change your tactic? So yeah, you still got to bring resolution. You still got to deal with the spec. You still got to deal with the issue. It's not that you ignore the issue, sweep it under the rug, and now you play nicey-nice and all your wonderful happy feelings are back. It's that you're now better in a better place to deal with the spec because you're calmed down, you focused on your own sinfulness and your own pride, and you've asked the Lord to help you to approach your spouse in a spirit of humility, and now you can actually take a different tactic. And the tactic that you're probably most likely going to take is going to be more driven by love than it is by the flesh and your desire to be right. But that takes humility to do that because you know what humility does? Humility acknowledges limitations. Humility acknowledges the fact that I realize I am limited, that I am only so strong, and then beyond that point, I have weakness. Humility will give voice to the fact that humility recognizes, I have triggers, I have, I have weaknesses, I have things I'm not very good at, and guys can be the worst at acknowledging weaknesses. It's like we'll be in pain trying to go lift something by ourselves. Oh yeah, can you go get that by yourself? Why don't you call the neighbor to help you? Oh no, I got it, whatever, you don't know anything. And then next thing you know, we get hurt, and we need someone to take care of us. But the thing is, is that the reason we got hurt was because our pride kept us from acknowledging our weakness. And sometimes, guys, we even know that we're weak in certain things, and we won't give voice to it because we don't want anyone to see our weakness. We don't want them to know that we know we have a weakness, even though we are well aware that we may have a weakness. It's not always that we're just being macho and, and bullheaded and thinking that we're strong when we're not. Sometimes it's we know we're weak and we just don't want other people to know we know we're weak and that we need their help. That's pride. Humility says, I know I'm weak in this. Humility says, I need help with this. Humility says, I can't do this alone. Humility says, I want to learn teach me, show me. Humility says, I don't yet know what I don't know, so I need to always be pliable and teachable to learn, to grow, not just try to show my spouse how great I am and how strong I am and how smart I am and try to exude those things over him or her in order to establish domination and control. Because pride, man, 
and tries to fix what's wrong with someone else. But God opposes the proud. God didn't want you to get married so you could fix someone else. God gets glory in marriage when we serve one another, when we examine ourselves, when we grow, when we show how we love each other and work through challenges together. That is a testimony to a marriage that is centered around God. And that's exactly what God is calling every single one of us to do and to be. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 3, if you have your Bible this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. Here Peter is addressing the church, and he's addressing them during a time of persecution where these people are literally being killed just for their faith in Christ alone. And these people are being hunted down, families are being separated, people are being tortured, killed, imprisoned, and there's a lot of fear going on, and Peter's writing them a letter to tell them, listen, in spite of all the things around you, all the pressures, all the persecutions, this is how you should live, and this is how you should treat one another this is how you should persevere and move through these types of severe challenges. So you think you got challenges. Think about the people Peter was writing to and the severe challenges they were facing as they heard these words. These were the words they heard written by the Apostle Peter when they were facing the fear and the threat of death just for their faith in Christ. And these are the things that God inspired him by the Holy Spirit to write to the church in First Peter chapter 3 and verse 1 where he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. You catch that? When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Did you hear that, guys? So that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against all those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Says, Listen, this is how we're supposed to live. This is how our lives are supposed to be a testimony to the watching world, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of people who may slander you, even in the face of people who may persecute you, people who may intend to harm you, 
He said, this is how we're called to live, in humility, in gentleness, even when we bring out correction, even when we give a defense for our faith. We're not supposed to be defending our faith in a haughty way. He said, even in the way you treat your husband, even in the way you treat your wife, these things are a testimony to a watching world. The way we treat our spouse should be noticeably different because of Christ in us, because of the love of God in us. It doesn't mean we won't argue, but it does mean that we'll pursue humility, serving one another, loving one another. We're able to persevere and maybe even sometimes endure hardships that keep our hearts right in the middle of a trial, that we not live in pride, but that we crucify the flesh that we deal with that log in our own eye, that we deal with that selfishness and that pride, and that we never stop investing. Peter said, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. He says, wives, don't go around speaking negative things about your husband. Don't be living in a way that's going to bring disrespect or shame to him either. He says, these, these are the ways that God is calling us to love each other, to care for each other. These are the desires and the heart of God for men and women living together in covenant relationship, a covenant between them and a covenant before God, and that we never stop investing in our friendship. We never stop investing with our spouse. We never stop investing in our personal growth as a follower of Jesus to grow more and more Christ-like, that we don't give up, that we don't get weary in well-doing because marriage is a covenant. It is a deep commitment that should not be taken lightly. And you're going to have struggles. You're going to have love and, and war, but love will always win the war if it truly is the love that comes from God. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and he said, concerning spiritual gifts, he said, man, those things are for here. They're great. They're awesome. They're to help proclaim the gospel. He said, but these things are going to pass away. He said, knowledge is going to pass away. He said, tongues are going to pass away. He said, but love, love's never going to pass away. He said, love is always going to be there. It never fails. And he said, actually, he said, there's going to be faith, hope, and, and love. He said, and the greatest of these is still love. Ephesians 4 and 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Humility in a marriage will keep you humble. It'll keep you transparent. It'll keep you honest. So what's your next step today? What's your next step today? What, what have you been hiding? What have you been hiding from your spouse? What do you need to work through? What do you need to ask your spouse forgiveness for? What war have you been fighting over and over and over and over again? What do you need to be investing in? So here's my challenge to you. To examine the log in your eye. Write down one or two things that maybe you need to do to discuss or take responsibility for. I'm, I'm talking about stuff that you're not going to point fingers, and, but maybe you have been. Maybe you have been pointing fingers. Maybe you have been blaming your spouse or maybe your boss or maybe your situation at work. Maybe you've been blaming your neighbors. <laughs> maybe you've been blaming your parents. Maybe you've been blaming 
your children, whatever, whoever you've been blaming, we're going to stop blaming. And I want you to take one or two things at most, and I want you to take responsibility for it and say, Lord, help me to deal with the log that's in my own eye. Help me to deal with this thing. Not point fingers, but deal with it. Something you've been prideful in that the Holy Spirit may be showing you even now. Maybe the Holy Spirit's brought it to your attention maybe today. Maybe in this service. And do business with God. And take it a step further and talk to your spouse about it. Doing business with God means you're going to confess this thing. God, I, I, I see this thing. It's not okay. It's been selfishness. It's been pride. It's not right. Lord, I repent of this thing. And then, Lord, who have I offended? Who have I hurt? Who have I wounded? Maybe even unintentionally as a result of my blindness to that pride. My blindness to being so focused on someone else's speck that I didn't deal with my issue. And fear has kept me in sin because I was afraid. Lord, I want to repent of that. I I'm free from that. You paid the price. You paid the price for freedom from sin. So Lord, help me to live in that freedom, walk in that freedom, walk in that forgiveness, walk in that mercy, that love that you showed me as God in Christ forgave me. Help me to be tenderhearted to someone else. Help me to be loving towards someone who's offended me. Help me to care for them and, and, and enjoy them again because God wants you to enjoy your spouse, not tolerate your spouse. Not only enjoy your spouse when they're just being this wonderful person that does everything you want them to do and they're gratifying your flesh. No, we need to love them and, and be able to enjoy them for who they are right now, not hold, withhold our love and affection for who we want them to be. But it takes humility to recognize those limits. So do business with God. Give grace where it's needed and begin enjoying your spouse and your marriage again. Lord, I thank you that you help us all to be in this thing for the long haul. Not to get weary in well-doing because, oh man, it can be so hard getting exhausted and being so tired when we've made commitments to do certain things and we've tried and we just feel like failures because it's not turning out the way we thought it would. Lord, help us realize it's not a formula, but it's about faithfulness. That it's not about I'm doing this because I want this person to respond this way, but Lord, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do. We're doing it because it's the Christ-like thing to do and the thing, Lord, that we trust and know that brings you the most honor and glory when we have Christ-like attitudes, when we have Christ-like behaviors, when we die to ourselves, when we make it about you instead of about us, Lord, where we give our attention and our focus to you, where we do everything as unto the Lord, even persevere through challenges. Because our hope is not in our spouse. Our hope is not in our family. Our hope is in you alone, Jesus. And so, God, people may disappoint, people may wound, people may hurt us, people may lie to us, people may abuse our trust, 
People may misuse us. People may slander us. But Lord, we're, we're doing this for you, not, not for them, because you're calling us, Lord, to live for your glory, to point people to you. So help us to live in light of bringing you glory with everything, even our challenges, even the things that we may face. It may be a momentary affliction, but Lord, we just want to say, God, give us your strength. Help us to resolve conflict in a God-honoring way. Help us to learn to live peaceably in understanding with our spouse and care for one another and love one another with the love that you've loved us with. May marriages and families be strengthened, healed, and restored from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Word of Grace. For more sermons or any other information, visit wogcc.com.